0: This morning, continuing in Romans chapter 7, this time in verses 1 through 6, with this recap series in the book of Romans, the new way of the Spirit. Now, as we've looked with Paul as he has gone through the gospel up to this point, Paul began by saying that he was not ashamed of the gospel, but instead he was eagerly obligated to it. A gospel that is nothing less than the power of God. Unto salvation, the wrath of God revealed against the sinfulness of men, and the righteousness of God revealed in making propitiation for them, ransoming back his people to him, purchasing our lives with the lifeblood of Christ, so that he who is just may remain just in the justification of sinners. Man, it says that Abraham believed. God, and it was reckoned to him. It was counted to him as something profoundly more than what belief actually is. Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. Man, that is the power of God on display in the Gospel. For belief, faith, is not powerful in and of itself. Instead, the power lies in the One in Whom We believe in the one in whom gives us faith. And having been justified through the gift of faith, we rejoice. Literally, we boast in the hope that God has given us. For we were dead. Dead as dead as dead. Born in the image of Adam. From dust we came and to dust we will go, but in Christ we live. And Paul says that the Gospel is from faith and for faith. The Gospel comes from somewhere. And it is going somewhere. Men came from somewhere. We came directly in our lineage from the image of our Father Adam. We came from dust, God says men were going somewhere. They were going to dust. And the Gospel could not be more different from whence it comes and to where it goes. In Christ we live. And today we will see in Christ we die. Paul is examining the identity of what it means to be the born again child of God. We've been asking this question over the last several weeks. What is a Christian? So many people claim that they are one. Some correctly. Unfortunately, some incorrectly. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a saint? What does it mean to be truly born again? And the answer is Paul starts with the difference between death and life between burial and resurrection, he starts with the baptism of the Spirit. And he says, a Christian is this. A Christian is one who has died with Christ, has been buried with Christ, and is risen with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in new life. It's both a slave language and a love language. It's a slave language... As to what it is to, and it's a love language as to where it is from. The newness of life is slave language, and it is obedience to the standard of God. But it is a love language in where the obedience comes from. Because the enslavement to the righteousness of God does not come upon men from without, but definitively from within. For we have become obedient by the miracle of God from the heart. And it can be both a slave language and a love language simultaneously. And this is true because the enslavement to righteousness as we saw last week is unlike enslavement to anything else. God has things that are just His own. There may be foreshadowings of them. There may be counterfeits of them amongst created things. But the foreshadowing and the counterfeits are not the originals. The things that God has are fundamentally His own. What a profound identity the Christian has. Life from death. That which is called into existence out of which did not Exists. And so today, Paul continues to explore the identity of the saint. And what he has to say today about the identity of the saint is that they are those who serve in the new way, not the old way, not the old way of the law, but those who serve in the new way of the Spirit. Romans chapter 7 In verse 6, Paul puts it this way. He says, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. But first, before Paul will get to what it means to serve in the new way of the Spirit, he speaks of other profound ideas. The identity of the law and the identity of marriage. So let's begin this morning. If we're going to understand where we're going in chapter 7, verse 6, we have to first understand what Paul says in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. In chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, do not know brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to." while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. In order to talk about the profound nature of the identity of the new creation, Paul begins first with the profound nature of the law and the profound nature of Of marriage. Guys, let me tell you, the law and marriage scripturally are both very, very big deals. All too often in the cultural situation of the Western Church today, we have long ago relegated the law to not being a very big deal, and more recently have consistently relegated marriage to being less and less of a big deal. But the reality is. From a scriptural standpoint, the law and marriage are both very, very, very big deals to our God and our Savior. Man, the law is such a big deal that Scripture says that the law is forever. It is forever. You can take it out of Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, where it is written that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed They belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So here you have Moses writing and the understanding is this, is there is all sorts of stuff that we do not know. There's all sorts of things in God that are secret and hidden. And of course, we can look down through the lens of redemptive history. We could even quote a whole lot of Paul here saying that there's been a whole bunch of stuff from the time that was written in Deuteronomy to this point in time now when a lot of the secret things of God have been revealed so that we do know them. But the reality is, is there is still massively more to Christ that is unknown than that which is known. That which we will not know until we see Him face to face. But the reality is, is there is much that is secret and hidden in God that even the people of God do not understand and are not privy to, but there is that which has been revealed to them as well. And it's been given to them. It belongs to them in the sense that God has showed it to them and holds them accountable for it. It is theirs and for their children forever that we may do all the words of this very law. This thing that has been revealed. Now, I want to caution you here. I don't have time to preach a sermon on it this morning that's a standalone all on its own. But I want you to, uh, to caution you not to confuse the law of Moses and the eternal law of God. You've got to be real careful with what Paul is saying here, not to do that. For the law of Moses, according to the book of Hebrews, is but a shadow and a copy of the full realities of the heavenly things. And indeed, when the fullness comes, the shadow and the copies will pass away. But the law of God Himself is immutable, it's unchangeable, it's eternal. Yeah. It continues forever. Speaking of this law, Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now friends, heaven and earth is going to pass away. It's doable. But it is not easy. It takes the full consummation of the coming of the kingdom. The fullness of the reward of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's just say this this morning. The law is a big deal. The law was a big deal to Moses the law was a big deal to Christ because the law is a big deal to God but it's not just the law that Paul talks about here at the beginning of chapter 7 it's specifically the law as it relates to marriage this is this is a mindset this is a context with what Paul talks about because he's about to talk about the way that you are bound The way that you were bound to servitude to iniquity or that you've been unbound from that and bound to servitude to righteousness and obedience to the standard of God that comes from the heart. But before he starts talking about this unbinding and rebinding, he's going to set the context by speaking about the way the law relates to marriage. Amongst men, Amongst men, there is little that is more honorable. Amongst men, there is little that should carry as much weight. Scripture has always taken marriage with the utmost sobriety. We find out in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5 why this is one of those things that to some degree was the secret things of God that were hidden in ages past but now revealed. You guys should know it well. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul writes and says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of His church, His body, and His Himself, its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So that's the part usually when you're doing the marriage counseling or the wedding ceremonies, you know that the ladies, they kind of bite their lip and get through You know, that's kind of the cliche. Hopefully that wouldn't be happening here. I pray that we know after all these years a little bit more about what's going on here. But that's kind of the cliche, right? Watch your lip and get through it. And you get to the man's responsibility. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And this is the time where the guys stick their chest out. You know, They're going to be submitted to because they love like Christ loved the church. And everybody knows that when Christ loved the church, He was willing to die for it. So you ask, are you willing to die for your, for, for, for your betrothed? Are you willing to die for your beloved? And they say, oh yes, oh yes, I am. And then the next question is this. Would you die for them in the same manner that Christ died for the church? Would you die for them while she was still your enemy, not your beloved? Would you die for her when she was being unfaithful in every single manner she could figure out how to be unfaithful to you and when she ran out of ways to be unfaithful to you? She sat around spending her time inventing more ways to be unfaithful. Would you die for then? That shuts them up. Typically pretty quick. A year later, when you're doing the marriage counseling, and you remind them of the things that you know they vowed, you know, if he would love me like Christ loved the church, I would be submissive to him. And you're know, like, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. It's not what any of this is about. Yes, it makes for a good marriage, but it makes for a good marriage not because it's pragmatic because it is the testimony of a perfect marriage. It's not simply that in the great created scheme of things that somehow women are better at being submissive and men are better at being loving. I hope you submit to one another as to Christ. I hope you both love one another. The reason this exists is because it testifies to something. It's bigger than me and you. It's bigger than men and women. It's bigger than your marriage. It's bigger than my marriage. Man, this thing has some weight. It has some weight. The same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. That is a profound statement that is taking from the very beginning of human society all the way back the very beginning of Genesis before man even knew that he would ever need a Savior, before he ever even knew that what he was doing was testimonial of what his very salvation would look like. This mystery is profound. Paul says, man, here's one of those things. The secret things that belong to God. This mystery of marriage, what's going on here, is profound. Why? I am saying that it refers to Christ and His church. The word in the Greek literally means that it references Christ and the church the way clay references the seal that smashes it. It's what you see here. The reason marriage exists is not to produce children or stability in society or to make you happy. It does all those things if it's done well. That's not why it exists. It exists as a thumbprint of what Christ and His bride are going to look like. It's a profound mystery. It's a profound mystery. Man, it refers to Christ in the church and fittingly, much like we were saying before, that it is not faith that is powerful in and of itself, but the one in whom we have faith in is where the power lies. So too, is this mystery which is so profound because that which it speaks of is chopped full of the evidence of the power of the one of which it speaks. Two become one flesh. How does that happen? How do two people become one flesh? More to the point, how do they become one flesh while still remaining two? Now, me and Sarah, we're one flesh. But I'm, I don't like share a circulatory system with her. He's on the pew and I'm in the pulpit. How do the two become one flesh while still remaining two? And the answer is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. That's how. It is the supernatural, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in marriage that causes the two to be bound together as one. You need to have in the back of your mind here Obedience to the standard from the heart because this is where Paul is going. It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that causes the two to become one flesh. This too was a secret thing of God that was hidden for a long time. Thousands of years. All the way up to the point of the prophet Malachi. We're in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, speaking of the covenant of marriage for which God was so very jealous. And the Jews just couldn't figure out why he was so jealous about their covenants of marriage. Why was he so angry when they discarded? The Lord tells the prophet. And the prophet says, concerning your covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? All of a sudden the light bulb comes on. You break the covenant with your spouse, and the Lord is angry. And and man, if you read Malachi like he's angry. And the reason he's angry, like he's personally angry, right? It's not just like it's not like when you get the speeding ticket. Because, you know, the county's decided that, you know, for the next three days this week, they're going to slow traffic down on Mount Zion Road. They set up the speed trap. You come through at six miles an hour. You know, the deputy pulls you over. If you're cordial and I say, hey, deputy, what's going on? He says, listen, you know, we've had too much speeding on this road, and, man, you're doing six miles an hour over, and, uh, you know, here's the citation. Uh, Go down and pay the fine. And you go, okay, great, thanks, I'll slow down. You go down and pay the fine. The next time you see the deputy... Walmart or wherever, no difference in your relationship whatsoever. This is just business. There's a rule, you broke it, now you're gonna pay. Now, same guy catches you doing 70 miles an hour at 7:50 in the morning in a 25 mile an hour school zone, he is not gonna have the same attitude. He's gonna take it real personally especially if one of his kids goes to that school. When you see the way the Lord reacts in Malachi to the way that they have forsaken the covenant of their marriage, He's taking it personally. Not that God doesn't take all sin personally. I think when you read Malachi, you'll find it to be a very particular expression. And He's taking it personally. Malachi tells us why. the covenant of marriage that exists in this life is not a two-way covenant between you and your spouse. It is a three-way covenant between three sentient individuals. It is between you, your spouse, and God. And not only that, but it is the portion of the Spirit of God in the midst of it and the power that He supplies that is actually able to make your marriage marriage where the two become one. Without that, it, without that, it's like you know, trying to take it. When you stick it together, it ain't going to stick. It is the Spirit of God Himself that supplies the miraculous means that binds to belonging, is the word that Paul's going to use, belonging to one another. When you consider that, it's no surprise what the Lord says directly to Malachi, just one verse down the page, where He says, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And Him who covers His garment with wrong," says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Man, that's a tough statement. It is a tough statement. It's so tough, as a matter of fact, modern translators have looked at every way they can to try to tone it down. And unfortunately, some of them had succumbed to the pressure, which is why I had to quote it out of the New King James instead of typically quoting it out of the ESV. But let me assure you, what it says in the Hebrew, God hates divorce because it does violence to a covenant in which his spirit is intimately involved. Now, that being said, that being said, and I could do pages on this, but I'm not. For those of you who have suffered through the tragedy of divorce, I want to say something to you. My heart breaks for your suffering. It does. My heart breaks for your suffering. My heart breaks that so many of our pulpits have not done a good job of explaining what marriage really is. It allowed you to get yourself in a position, a lot of times, that came out of ignorance. There used to be, I haven't seen it in a while. I'm glad it went away. There was a billboard for a while that was was always over on, like, um, it was always over there on on Phoenix, um, like right by where, like, the Tacos for Life is now. Some law firm in town. Had a picture that said, broken wedding rings on it. and said, divorce without the drama. What a hellish lie lie. There is no such thing. You can't take two that are one flesh and rip them apart not having drama. So please hear me. My heart breaks for your suffering. One of the things I've found is that when you sit down and, and, and have an honest discussion with people who have been through divorce, especially when they understand that you're not attacking them but you're hurting for them, is that They really don't need anybody to tell them how evil and bad divorce is. They know all too well they have to live it. It's gut-wrenching. I'll have you note here very quickly the perfecting nature of sin's own evil. Even though simple theology wants to run screaming from this, the reality is is that Scripture teaches us that sin is so evil that you can step into things sometimes that is not even the result of your own sin in this fallen world that can leave you in a place where any move forward is sin. Every direction you look. And you can file that under the world doesn't need the offering of salvation. It needs an actual Savior. Because it can be some nasty, nasty stuff always a correct path to take. Always the path that the Lord would have you go. And for those of you who suffer from divorce, what I would tell you is that in the Gospel of Jesus Christ is revealed the wrath of God against the sin of men, the righteousness of God and the salvation of God in Jesus Christ and repentance and redemption win the day. They win the day. Man, what do you think Paul is talking about here? And I'm about to soapbox just a little. You just have to forgive me. What do you think he's talking about here? He's talking about people who were once enslaved to one thing that lived to death, that have been set free in order to be enslaved from the heart to another. This is the point. If you're suffering, know my heart goes out to you. Know that Christ is the answer. He's the answer. Specifically so. The law of Moses is a weighty thing. Marriage is a weighty thing. It's weighty enough. As a matter of fact, I didn't put in the notes today because this is kind of an overview. It's so weighty that when Jesus starts really explaining to them what's going on with marriage and divorce, the apostles pipe up and go, maybe it's just better not to get married. And Jesus kind of nods his head out and goes, maybe so. Tough stuff. The law of Moses is weighty and marriage is weighty. But there is something that is weightier. Back in Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking of those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For if a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage accordingly. She would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. She is bound as long as she lives. The law is binding on a person. As long as He lives. All human marriage is temporary. That's a crazy thought to me. It's a crazy thought. But all human marriage is temporary. It's a testimony of Christ and His bride. And when the fullness of the reality comes, the testimony comes to an end. What's a crazy thought to me is that the depth—if I—if I'm going to use a personal example—the depth that I have in my own marriage, as deep as it is, is just a testimony. It's just a shadow. It's just a copy. And if you go to the Hebrew, if you go to Hebrews and look at that those words in the Greek, I mean, it means like the reflection on a pool compared to the reality that is casting it. Friends, if the testimony is this deep, what must we say of the reality? If the mystery is so profound that it results by the power of God in two people becoming one flesh, Then, what must be the reality that replaces it so that when it ceases to be, it is not missed nor mourned for? Now, that's something I want to see. Matthew chapter 22, verse 23 through 33. It says that the same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. See, there's been bad theology for a long time. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. What's the old cliche? That's why they're sad, you see? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dad jokes, right? Teacher Moses said, "If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother." They're trying. They're trying to trap the one who is the fulfillment of the law with his own law. It's not going to work well for him. Now there were seven brothers among us, and the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother, and so to the second, the third, and down to the seventh. And after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered them and said, You're wrong. You're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that it was said to you by God... I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at His teaching. Man, as deep as the testimony is, the reality is, it is a testimony. The fullness will come. And when it comes, what you will see is the power of God. The end of that testimony of the fullness of the reality will be the moment of death where to be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. We will see Him face to face. The law is waiting. Marriage is waiting. But there is something in the context of Romans chapter 7 that is weightier. And that is death itself. Friends, death puts the end to a lot of things. You're bound to the law as long as you're alive. Death puts an end to a lot of things. Death puts an end to your marriage. Puts an end to your mortgage. Dead man never made a mortgage payment in his life. That's number two. Puts an end to ownership of property, it puts an into the responsibility to raise your kids. Death puts an end to a lot of stuff. As a matter of fact, death is the end of all binding ownership of the written code. This is the point Paul makes in Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Likewise, my brothers, just like the binding of the law in marriage. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were still living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay. Let's back up real quick. Let's back up to just a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, and I know I didn't give this to Ethan in the notes, so it's not on the board. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace, not being? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to Righteousness. Okay, so here's the standard that Paul gives if you present yourselves to someone, you become its slave either to obedience, which leads to righteousness, or sin that leads to death. Presentation results in enslavement. Now, presentation does not result in employment. Presentation results in enslavement. An enslavement that is very specifically an enslavement either unto death or unto life. an enslavement unto labor. It's not an enslavement unto household service. It's an enslavement unto death or unto life. So here's the thing. And this is kind of the catch. Because then Paul continues. He's going to say just down the page, I am speaking in human terms in verse 19 because of your natural limitations. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And so typically what we focus on in the Gospel is to go, look man, you're a slave to sin. Stop presenting yourself as a slave to sin because it's going to lead to death and start presenting yourself as a slave to righteousness because everybody knows that you would rather live than die. Here's the problem. And I think that when we kind of have that shallow understanding of what the Gospel is, I think one of the reasons that people tend to tune us out is because they intuitively know there's a problem. Like maybe they can't put their finger on it, but down somewhere, deep in, they you know, something's not kosher with that. Listen, you're a slave to sin and and so cease being a slave to sin and come over here and instead be a slave to righteousness. The problem is, is Paul just set up the page, whichever one you present yourself to, you're a slave. You're not an employee. You're a slave. There's no getting away from it. Now I will say this, the Baptists are incredibly, incredibly, non-linear in their reasoning with this theology because what we'll tell you is that you have the ability to lay down the slave to sin and come over here and pick up the slave to righteousness you just don't ever have the ability to put the slave of righteousness down at least the charismatics are consistent they'll tell you you can just go back and forth all day long reality is is what scripture says if you're presented to one you're it and you're enslaved. You're not employed. You can't give your two weeks' notice. You know how you quit being a slave? He said, well, then how do you do it? Because he just said, So, yeah, Pastor Robert, right in the middle, he says, praise be to God because you who are once slaves to iniquity have become obedient to the heart, from the heart, to be slaves of righteousness. So you can move from one to the other. Amen, brother, you can move. You know how you quit being a slave? You drop dead. That's how. And you quit being enslaved when you die. Especially when the enslavement is unto life or death. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul uses two examples he uses slavery and he uses marriage. This is the only way, according to the law, that you're going to get out of either one is to die. That's it. So here's the call to the Gospel. Stop being a slave to sin and become a slave to righteousness. But how am I a slave? Christ is offering you freedom. And it comes in death that is through Christ instead of being your own. You say, well, death through Christ does not exactly sound like an upbeat message, what about life through Christ? Indeed, what about life through Christ? Scripture says that they only come together. That you cannot separate the two. But the life in Christ is dependent upon death in Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verse 5, Paul says, For if we have been united with Him, there is a if-then statement. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. You want to be raised with Christ? You're going to have to die with Christ. At this point in time, people say, you mean like when He says right here, in verse 4, Likewise, my brother, brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. I mean, do you mean dead to the law the way one would say in their anger, you know, you're dead to me? Nope. Not at all. What is being spoken of here is not a subjective reality. It is an objective reality. Every single verb in this string in the Greek is all in the indicative mood Which means that Paul is not talking about it as being hypothetical. It is being spoken of as being real. This is not some ethereal, mystical way that Christ died and you've been associated with Christ and so it's kind of like you died too because you're on board for all the same stuff. That is not what is being spoken of here. What here is indicative, it is objective, it is read. Look in chapter 7 verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died. It's a pretty straightforward statement. It's not as though it's like you also died. You have... If it was subjective, that's what you would get in the translations of the English. It is like you have died. It is as though you have died. You have died. Back in chapter 6, verses 5 through 6, it's even more blatant. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There's There's the subjective, the if. Now, here is the indicative. We know that our old self was crucified with him. It was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You want to know how you rescue a slave to sin? Well, if you're the God who is the arbiter of life and death is revealing His salvation in Jesus Christ and calls something to be out of nothing, what you do is you slay them and speak them back to life. How in the world... I'll be honest with you, we are so out of time, this just became a teaser for next week. How in the world... How in the world was I crucified with Christ? Not metaphorically... Not mystically, not woo very fairy. How was I actually crucified with Christ? How did I actually die? How did you actually die with Christ? Look, you say, man, I never even thought about this stuff. It's okay. Listen, the new birth, the new creation, when babies are born, they don't have to know much about being born to be born. They just have to be born. as we grow, we start understanding more. It's important to understand because one of these days you who once knew nothing but were born may find yourself metaphorically helping to deliver a baby. At that point in time, it's good to know how this stuff works. You who were born again are shepherding your children in the gospel in order that they may be born again. It's good to know this stuff works. How? How can it be said that when Christ was crucified 2,000 years ago, I was crucified with Him and that actually happened? Paul already set the stage for us. And he assumed that you knew something. one. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. He expects you to know the law. He expects you to know the prophets. He's going to set the stage with marriage and He expects you to understand how that covenant between two spouses and the Holy Spirit that makes them one flesh works. And then He says in verse 5, likewise. How are you crucified with Christ? Christ same way the two become one flesh by the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit an action that provides for the justice of God to be fulfilled oh man that just and the justifier statement is huge man listen guys God said the soul who sins dies he wasn't lying through the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit, we were crucified with Christ. We died to the law. We died to that in iniquity that we presented ourselves to. It provides for the justice of God. It provides for the freedom of His people. It is how we can go and say to people, come to Christ and be free And that actually be true. Now look, is this something that you come out with? I mean, is this an evangelism sermon that you take down to the corner and preach it? Probably not. I've seen the Lord save them with weirder stuff than that, though. But probably not. But for those that are going about the business of personal sanctification and about evangelizing those who, in order to be free, are going to have to die, whether they understand it or not, I would say it's critical. It provides for justice. It provides for freedom. It provides for the new way of the Spirit. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Which is exactly where we will pick up next week. So what I would say to you is this when Jesus said, Pick up your cross and follow me, he meant it. He said, Yeah, but everybody knows where a cross leads, and if you if you take that seriously, then how can I follow him if I'm dead? the Holy Spirit joined you to Him when He picked up the cross. Having been crucified with Christ. You say, man, I don't understand that. I don't either. I just know it's real. I just know it's real. I don't understand how the two become one flesh. I don't even know that I can give you a good description but I live it every day personal testimony you bound us to him that you can die have the obligation of the law canceled that instead you may be enslaved to something else so my message to you today is come to Christ and die Come to Christ and die that you may live. The man is no fool to depart from that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Come and die. For we, if we have been joined with Him in a burial like His, we will most certainly be joined with Him in a resurrection.